Welcome to the BioCurious Podcast with your host, Kayla Osterhoff. As a health scientist, biohacker, and generally curious person, I'm always looking for new ways to optimize and integrate mind, body, and spiritual health. I created this podcast to explore the magic and science of human biology and expand your consciousness through learning. If you enjoy the episode that you're about to hear, please leave a review and share it with someone who can benefit from the information. Now let's get curious. Hello, my bio-curious friends. I hope this episode is finding you well and happy with all of the crazy COVID-19 stuff going on right now. I know it can be a challenge to actually stay happy and well, so I hope that you are having success with that. I know that for me personally, these events have dramatically changed my plans both day-to-day and long-term, but you know that they say life happens when you're busy making other plans. So. I suppose all of the new plans and routines that are a result of this pandemic could really result in better outcomes than what we had originally planned for ourselves. So that could be the silver lining, or at least that's what I like to think. One positive thing that has come out of all of this for me personally is that I've gotten back on track with some of my healthy habits that just tend to fall off when I'm busy, like meditation, reading for pleasure, getting out in the sun, listening to music, talking to friends on the phone, cooking, and even my sleep has really improved. It's interesting because my sleep scores on my BioStrap Sleep Lab, which as you know, I talk about a lot, um, (laughs) initially tanked when all of this happened, which I think was due to the extra stress and focus on my work around COVID-19. But now it seems that I have actually settled into the new reality quite nicely. My HRV, for instance, has improved by about 20% and my wake-ups have decreased, but also I'm just sleeping more in general with less of a hectic schedule. um, And my body really is responding well to that. So, Another positive result is that I'm getting to focus on some of my more creative work, like on days like today, when my schedule is unexpectedly open, I've been taking my creative nootropic stack from Formula, which I've shared with you guys a a couple times on Instagram, um, and it just allows me to really crank out a ton of creative work in one big push, including some really awesome episodes of the podcast that you will hear in the coming weeks. And I'm also finishing up an online course and it's almost ready for you guys. So I'll let you know when that's available. This week, we are lucky enough to have a brilliant infectious disease doctor on the podcast, Dr. Sadi Betis, to discuss the pathology and treatment options for COVID-19. So far, I've really only shared information on the epidemiology and public health science aspects of the outbreak, but I haven't gone into detail on current and potential treatments. 
And there's really a good reason for that, which is that it's not my area of expertise. And I simply don't um, educate or provide knowledge on things that I am not personally an expert on. But I have been getting a lot of questions about the current and potential COVID-19 treatments almost daily. So I thought it was best to have an expert inform us on these topics. Dr. Sadi Betis, who is one of the leading infectious doctors in the US, was gracious enough to offer his time to provide us with the medical perspective on COVID-19 on this episode. So I'm very grateful for the insight he shared as I learned a lot from this conversation and I think you will as well. Thank you so much, Sadi Betis, for coming on the BioCurious podcast. I am so grateful that you have taken the time out of your busy schedule, as I know you're very busy as an infectious disease doctor with the COVID response and, and everything happening around that. So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, it's nice to be here, Kayla. So I wanted to start by hearing a little bit about your background and how you got into the field of infectious disease to begin with. Um, so my training was in uh, New York. I trained at uh, Downstate uh, SUNY Medical Center in Brooklyn. And uh, there at the time, back in the mid-80s, there was a lot of HIV that was going on and we didn't know what to do or how to manage them and uh, a lot of people were dying after a couple of months at the most of their you know at the time they present to us um, and uh, kind of what we used to read in the books about infectious diseases uh, went out the window because hiv came with a you know it, the the immunodeficiency that it creates provides organisms with so many different ways of presenting and it was important that we do something to try and uh, stop that infection um, or limits you know limit what it does to people treat it manage it prevent it um, and so that's what got me interested in uh, in id I, I'm also very interested in infectious disease, but from um, an epidemiology standpoint, as you know, mm -hmm. um, I worked on many of the responses, Ebola and Zika, for instance, recently um, with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But today, I would love to talk a little bit more about how this specific coronavirus presents itself and how it spreads within the population, and then also the treatment um, methods that are currently being used and researched. From your perspective, what is this specific virus as it compares to other coronaviruses, or for instance, the flu, which it's being um, compared with a lot in the media? So I think, the uh, Kayla, the, the presentation may be a little bit different. Uh, so typically, with uh, with viral infections or what we typically call, you know, flu-like um, infections, uh, they're not well differentiated. And there's a classical presentation for the flu, uh, influenza virus, or for things such as rhinovirus, the common cold 
virus. Um, and then you've got these coronaviruses that also cause the cold. Uh, and so the differences between them most of the time are not well perceived um, when someone comes down with the sniffles or a runny nose. Uh, the classical manifestations, for example, for flu is that it's an infection that begins suddenly with headaches, prostration, fever, may have some diarrhea associated with it and cough, but everything comes typically within a very short time. In contrast to rhinovirus that causes the common cold or a lot of cases of the common cold. Um, and similarly, the coronaviruses that we've all known of because somewhere around 30% of colds on a annual rates are secondary or attributed to coronavirus. Now, that's not the same coronavirus that we have currently, the COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, uh, but it's the um, it's coronaviruses that are present in the community. Uh, the difference in coronavirus presentation to rhinovirus, they're really very, very similar. The differences between them are minor and nobody really cares most of the time to figure out mm -hmm. which one it is. Or do you have a rhinovirus or do you have a coronavirus? Um, incubation period is relatively short. Maybe it's a little bit longer for coronavirus by a day, but typically incubation period, maybe two to three days, for example. Um, the way they present is, you know, a sore throat, perhaps. Uh, runny nose, runny eyes, a um, little bit of sneezing. You don't feel very well. And typically within less than a week, you're, you're done. Um, you, you recover from it and you go back to your usual life. Um, and this is in contrast to the current COVID-19, which uh, may begin with a fever, um, may uh, begin with uh, feeling tired, for a couple of days. Um, there are reports um, that are emerging that show that uh, your sense of smell may be one of the early things that give it away in the sense that you begin losing your ability to smell and taste uh, stuff, uh, whether it's food or, uh, you know, perfumes or uh, what have you in terms of smelling. Uh, the uh, the thing is, there's, there seems to be a couple of phases to this. So initially, you just don't feel well, you have fever, you may have some flu-like symptoms such as a runny nose, uh, you may have cough, uh, and then there seems to be a progression after that. There's a phase that they're beginning um, to share with us, which is uh, the oxygen level begins um, begins to get lower and that you can figure out with a pulse oximeter. These are the small little devices that you can get from Walgreens or CVS and put on your finger and they'll measure your oxygen saturation in the lung, which is a measure of how good the uh, oxygenation is happening in the lungs and the oxygen exchange. Um, and so the, the, it appears that people are still, they, they don't complain of a low oxygen 
initially, yet you can record it by these pulse oximeters. Mm. Um, and within, you know, perhaps maybe a week or another couple of days, uh, those who are destined to get worse will get worse. Uh, they will begin having their lung manifestations, uh, pneumonias, uh, consolidation possibly, or um, and possibly they may need to be intubated. Uh, but it seems that gauging people by how much oxygen they need is a good indicator for when they need to uh, be transferred to the intensive care unit so that they could uh, be intubated and put a, on a ventilator. Hmm. Yeah, and I know that that is one of the big risks that are posed to our healthcare system with so many people being infected is that we just don't simply have enough supply of medical devices such as the ones used for intubation to cover as many people as are projected to be ill. And it seems like in the state of New York, that is already um, happening in some extent where there's not enough hospital beds or medical supplies to cover the entire population that is getting sick there. Yeah. So I was wondering if caught early enough, are there ways to stop this from progressing to getting so severe where you need to be intubated? So I think there's, there's been several drugs that have been mentioned in the news mm. and uh, you know, we all, I think watch the president, and his team almost on a daily basis come up on the TV and share with us uh, Dr. Anthony uh, Fauci and Dr. Burks. Uh, they, they share with us what they, uh, what they know and what they don't know and what is potentially um, useful and what is not. Uh, so among the things that we know may work is this drug that's called remdesivir. Um, and it's an antiviral agent. I believe it was developed for uh, the time for Ebola, but it didn't work. Mm. And so they had already figured out some of its safety issues uh, at that time. And, you know, obviously it just sits on the shelf waiting for uh, some disease to show up or for the, uh, the company to figure out what it could work for. So there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of use for this remdesivir. Uh, it's been used in China, and it's now being used in the United States. Uh, they were using it on a compassionate basis, but now the I'm, I believe the company that makes it is limiting it to a clinical trial, to an advanced stage clinical trial. Mm. And so they, they probably want to, uh, you know, you want, they want to move it to a stage where it would be uh, uh, approved by the FDA and uh, become, you know, as a, as a drug that anyone could purchase, whether it's hospitals or physicians, and, and treat people with it. Uh, so remdesivir is really on top of the list. And then you've got these two other agents that have been already approved, uh, Zithromax, Mm. or azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine. So hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil is used for lupus patients, sometimes for rheumatoid arthritis patients as well, and other autoimmune states. 
or disorders. And uh, so any physician can write for that. Mm. Um, and there seems to be some effects on COVID-19 when people use it. Now, the only trial that's been out there is the one that was recently reported from France. And they had a total of, um, I believe it was 36 patients or 38 patients. 16 of those were controls, and then the other 20 or so, they've used these uh, two agents on them, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Now, azithromycin is very commonly known as the ZPAC. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also available by prescription. Uh, and so a lot of people have been using this. And so probably right now, if, uh, if you want to go and purchase them, if you get a script for them and go to a pharmacy, probably there'll be a shortage since mm-hmm. a lot of these medicines, these two medications have been shifted to hospitals. Um, and I know that very recently, the companies that uh, at least make hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, they've been donating millions of doses uh, in the U.S. for use. Now, there's also, obviously, these are, you know, they've been vetted in terms of their safety and in terms of their efficacy for other things. So, the, you know, for people who have lupus, this is hydroxychloroquine has been approved. We know it's safety and efficacy for that disorder. But when it comes to COVID-19, you really don't know whether there's anything that's going to be material regarding its safety and you obviously don't know if it's really effective or not. Um, And the same thing goes for azithromycin. Uh, We know that it's relatively a safe antibiotic and we use it very commonly in uh, respiratory tract infections that may be uh, secondary to organisms that Uh, on which it could work for. Uh, But again, the safety issues are, you know, can happen. You know, one of the things that's very peculiar with COVID-19 is that 40% almost of people who get severely ill appear to have um, cardiac involvement. Hmm. And they would get a cardiomyopathy, heart failure. Um, They also get issues with their kidneys, they can get kidney failure. But azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine could prolong the QT interval on an EKG, on an electrocardiogram. And when you have something that the disorder itself is just causing already cardiomyopathy or you know congestive heart failure, uh, prolonging the QT interval may be a bad thing. Uh, And so I think this is where the caution that we have to use when prescribing these medicines for, you know, someone who has or is coming down with COVID-19. There's always a risk and a benefit when you want to use a medicine. Uh, So maybe for the young people, for example, maybe for the young people who 90% and probably even more uh, they either are asymptomatic or come down with just sniffles with COVID-19. Um, maybe they don't need to be treated with anything. 
mm-hmm. uh, except stay home and rest and, you know, some hot chicken soup and some Tylenol and cough syrup um, and just weather it for two weeks um, versus the, uh, the individuals who are over the age of 60 who are the high risk. So as your age goes up, your risk for getting severe disease increases significantly and maybe perhaps those are the people that we should be limiting the use of uh, things like azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine for Mm. Uh, so all these things are so new and nobody really has had a good chance to sit and think them out Mm -hmm. in detail and so that's why you see a lot of things happening across the country and across the world Uh, right I I think the drawback of being in the U.S. is that we have a very heavy-handed ethical review and clinical review process, whereas in other countries, they may be able to speed that process up in a way. That, that may be true, Kayla, but mm. you, you, they're actually working around this very quickly, right? Mm. Okay. I mean, we've seen them develop a vaccine like in a couple of weeks and two, three weeks, they've, they've put something together and they've already started the trial for vaccinating someone. But mm-hmm. this ethical issue is really very important. Yes. So, I, you know, the, the, the good example that I have for you is in the 1960s um, when we were not so, you know, when we did things a little bit differently. And back then the FDA approved medicines um, such as thalidomide. I don't know if you know the story of thalidomide or what thalidomide is. I don't. Well, back in the 60s, um, women, you know, women, when they get pregnant, it's very common that they develop nausea and vomiting, mm-hmm. right? And when they do, you know, they, they want something to stop it. And in the 1960s, they developed thalidomide and before it was vetted out in terms of its safety very well, uh, it was put in the market as the safest thing that's, you know, since sliced bread. Um, Mm. And women could take it uh, when they have their nausea and vomiting, um, you know, when they get pregnant. And thalidomide led to an outbreak of children uh, that didn't have their extremities or had congenital anomalies uh, you know, they were born with, uh, with these defects. And, and so the, the story of the safety is extremely important for us. This is just one story of many. Mm-hmm. That's why the regulatory piece is very important. We have to make sure that it works. Right. There's been so medicines out there that have been put to use or have been, you know, approved. But when they get approved, they get approved as... Uh, their efficacy is approved in randomized controlled trials. But when you scale them to the population, once you get something approved and it scales to the population, you want to look at, are they really working? And many times we find that things that work in a randomized controlled trial, you know, where there's 400, 500 patients, it's very different than when you scale it up to, you know, 100 million or a billion uh, that are, other safety issues that sometimes pop up that require action where you need to withdraw the drug from the market, for example, um, mm-hmm. because its safety profile is not acceptable. 
Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And just to go back to something you mentioned before, um, when we we're talking about the risk increases with age and we haven't really thought through how to approach the distribution of resources and treatment and deciding who would need treatment prior to others that may just naturally get over this um, virus themselves. I wonder if the increased risk with age is actually an increased risk which with different comorbidities. When you were speaking about the contraindications of having cardiac events, could that be a result of somebody who has pre-existing cardiovascular disease or um, I wonder if it's less about age and it's more about these other comorbidities. So there's, the answer is not that simple. There, you know, right. perhaps the answer is both. Mm. Uh, so with age, your immune system comes down. Mm -hmm. It is not as robust as when you're 20 years old, 30 years old. There are things that take place. So that's one aspect to it. And then the, the other aspect is, you know, once you hit 60, um, I know very, very few people who are 60 and above who don't have a comorbidity, right. whether it's diabetes, hypertension. I mean, you, you just have to examine them and look at them. And there's every single one of us over the age of 60 probably has something, even if it's just degenerative arthritis of their knee or hip or something that's going on. And so these things tend to accumulate as we get older, you know, mm -hmm. diabetes and hypertension and heart failure and COPD and asthma and anemia and all sorts of things. Um, and that makes it more difficult to figure out, you know, is it just the age or is it the comorbidity? It's probably both that are right. contributing to that. Um, yeah. I wonder what the correlation between having severe symptoms and smoking. Because for instance, when we see these worse outcomes happening in Italy, and I know that there's already been a couple studies that have come out from China around this, I wonder if smoking could be responsible for the higher morbidity or mortality rate over in Italy. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I, you know, what I can share with you is that people who smoke, they have what we call changes uh, called squamous metaplasia mm. in the respiratory epithelium. And these are all the cells that line the breathing airways and, you know, uh, the lungs and, uh, and what happens, the irritants in smoking uh, cause changes in these cells. And so you lose a lot of the cilia that help you clear things from your lungs and trachea um, to the outside. And so smokers don't have the same uh, robust immune mechanisms uh, along their mucosal surface and their airways like those non-smokers um, do. And if you want to extrapolate from that, that, hey, maybe this is a reason why, uh, why smokers get worse disease, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, I don't know the answer. Right. Um, 
but that's that's something that's going to have to be looked at and you know obviously studied uh, similarly there are reports that say those who have hypertension appear to be represented more in uh, cohorts of those who are getting worse disease and they're dying the problem is if you're old um, the likelihood of you having if you're over the age of mm -hmm. 60 the likelihood of you having hypertension is extremely high it's somewhere right. at least 50 percent of the population over this age of 60 yeah. probably has hypertension or high blood pressure well uh, and, and, and hypertension is actually the number one killer of all people across the entire world I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, I know it's a chronic disease and I yeah. know it's extremely common. Uh, I don't know that it's a, it's a killer by itself, probably the complications from it. Right. Well, cardiovascular the, disease is actually okay. the killer, but hypertension is the major cause of cardiovascular disease, which in and of itself is, again, a, another symptom. It's not necessarily That's a right. cause, but um, I actually used to work on the Global Hearts Initiative. Um, which okay. focused on cardiovascular disease globally. And so that's the only reason why I know that statistic. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the secondary things from the high blood pressure, the kidney right. failure, the strokes, yep. the heart attacks, exactly. um, and everything else that secondarily comes because of uh, a high blood pressure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, when you trace it, you go back and you go back and you go back, it all comes down to behavioral choices and lifestyle habits that obviously cause the hypertension yes. and and then you have to turn to medical treatment for the solution whereas prevention is probably where we should be focusing our efforts but so, always i guess that's always the case yeah it's you know it's very interesting when you mention about behavior uh, or behavioral things because you're you're right you know the if you smoke you get hardening of the arteries um if you uh, drink a lot of alcohol uh, chronically over time, you, you know, that can manifest with hypertension. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of these, you know, it seems that the biggest thing we can do is behavioral changes yes. uh, that would help us um, stay as healthy as, as possible. And so when you look at something like COVID-19, um, and, you know, I've been noticing it myself and my, my wife, you know, we'll, we'll go out, for example, and uh, we're trying to buy some stuff from the supermarket, mm -hmm. right? And you know that COVID gets transmitted by droplet, but also by fomite. Mm -hmm. And by fomite, I mean, you know, you've, you touch a handle or you touch the cart that you use in the supermarket or you touch a box or something that maybe somebody had just touched before you and you know or the uh, vegetables or whatever and it is extremely difficult first to keep your hands away from your face and second it's extremely difficult to keep everything that you're using your hands for um, covid clean right you know including your car keys including the door handle on your car or including the you know the supermarket cart and it's extremely difficult to try and, you know, you, you try to limit that as much as possible, but I've come to realize it's almost impossible. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, I'll, I'll come out of my condo, go down the stairs. Well, I don't know who's touched the, uh, the rails or who opened, you know, the door to the, uh, to the stairwell. 
uh, before me. And so I, you know, you either have to have, uh, you know, gloves on all the time. And then when you take them off, uh, you uh, maybe wash your hands. But these are among the behavioral things that are so difficult for people to do. And so this physical distancing sounds like a, uh, like one of the best things to do uh, mm-hmm. for us. But at the same time, um, the, uh, the inanimate objects that are around you outside your home, it's impossible almost to stay away from them. Right. And, you know, the research is varying about how long the virus can survive on an object. Um, I've seen some research that is saying eight hours and some that is saying over 24 um, and then some that is saying many days. So I think with all of this information out there, it's really hard for people to take the precautions seriously because they don't know what the situation really is. So how long does this thing stay on surfaces? Yeah. So the New England Journal of Medicine, um, I think it was last week or the week before, they had a small little piece on that. They published mm. an article. And I believe it was from this, by the CDC uh, that, you know, they, they did a quick experiment and mm-hmm. they came back and they, you know, they said, uh, this is experimentally. Right. Um, you know, based on the material that you have here, it can live three hours here. It can live, you know, uh, a day or two or three. Uh, and so we know that it's, it's able to survive under experimental uh, conditions mm-hmm. uh, for at least a day or two. Uh, but subsequent to that, I think it was from one of the ships, one of the... Uh, the, the cruise ships that had an outbreak, uh, they were able to find remnants of the virus 17 days uh, later after, right. you know, people had excavated the rooms. And, and, and so the, the fact that, and that's obviously a non-experimental condition, you know, you just go in there and you keep swiping surfaces until you find something positive and then you begin coming back every day and seeing how long this thing you're able to, you know, uh, make it grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 17 days is really rather alarming, right? Yeah. Because that means if the number of people who are infected and they don't know and they're touching things, this thing may actually last a lot longer than the experimental study that was published out there. And then the question comes, how long do the quarantine measures need to stay in place? Because if we're just looking at the infectiousness of each person, then that's a certain length of time. But then if we're looking at that, in addition to how long the virus is surviving on surfaces, then that adds potentially, like you said, another 17 days from when the last time people were out touching things. And I don't think anybody has the answers at this point, but all of the measures that are being taken are certainly going to help to some extent. So going back to what people can do, for patients that are reaching out to you for guidance or or coming in or or calling you that are having symptoms, uh, what kind of guidance are you providing for them for what they could be doing at home as far as potential 
treatments for their symptoms or preventative measures. So I think that, you know, what we've, what we've been doing is actually asking people not to come to the clinic, for mm-hmm. example, yeah. so that there's no further spread. Uh, and obviously, if, if they're experiencing any shortness of breath, Uh, or any chest pain or anything that they think may be putting them in jeopardy is to just go to the emergency room. Mm. Uh, So the emergency rooms are better equipped than clinics. They have uh, protective equipment, masks and gowns and stuff, uh, much better than clinics do. Uh, And if they feel that they can weather it, to just go ahead and just go home, stay home, stay in a room, uh, you know, don't co-mingle with your, with your family members uh, and drink a lot of fluids, rest, take some Tylenol, and to just weather it out on their own. Mm-hmm. It's not easy, right? Yeah. You know, we're social people and it's very difficult to isolate yourself, uh, but it's important that they do that. And I hope that they do. And uh, I haven't treated anyone specifically with uh, azithromycin or with hydroxychloroquine. Again, I think that if once someone wants to use these, they probably should uh, should be on the sick side, and it's better if they could go somewhere where um, there's a trial or they're collecting um, information on in the individuals who are who want to uh, be on those medicines and use them. Um, mm-hmm. And so the hospitals are really the best place for that rather than, you know, uh, us using that and really not knowing whether we're creating more harm or are we really helping people. Mm. There are a few studies that I've come across and things that people are asking through social media to me and others about some potential treatments, alternative treatments that are out there um, that could be both preventative and also maybe shorten the symptom period of COVID-19. And I was wondering if you had any insight on any of these. So one is antiviral herbs, such as andrographis herbs is one that is um, being looked at And that one specifically also helps with fungal colonization in the lungs, which is something that has been um, talked about with our COVID-19. And then the others are high-dose vitamin C. I know there's some research coming out of China on that. Ozone therapy. Do you have any insight on any of those three? I, um, you know, I really don't. And I would be very careful of uh, advocating any of that stuff to oh, anyone. Yeah. You know, these coronaviruses, like I said, they're like rhinoviruses. They've been with us for, you know, uh, thousands of years. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're not new. And, um, you know, I know my grandmother used to always make me take a, when I get a cold, um, you know, they, we had these huge vitamin C tablets that they yeah. would put them in water, let them fuzz, and then you drink them. Uh, But the reality is, unless it is done in a trial setting, it makes all these supplements, whether they have an effect or not, Mm -hmm. is very difficult to figure out. There are so many manufacturers. There are so many differences in their components and in their effects. And nobody really knows whether they work 
or they don't. And some of them actually cause harm. Yes. And so it's difficult to, you know, to, uh, to put hope on them mm-hmm. when, when people need more than that. You know, when, when someone is very sick, they, they need something. And when somebody is sick, you don't want to make them more sick, you know, advocating something that may... Uh, uh, however, I understand that a lot of people believe in herbs and supplements. And that's really... Um, they would have to take it upon themselves... Um, to use that stuff. I, I don't yeah. advocate it. Yeah. Everyone who has reached out to me asking about these three things. So I wanted to get the medical perspective because I feel exactly the same way as you, where I don't think that anyone should be, um, should be advocating for any of these things without knowledge about if it could potentially make things worse or cause harm. And because this virus is novel, we don't know that any of these things will or will not help or make it worse. Positive correlation between any of these um, alternative methods as a treatment could largely be due to placebo, just like really any clinical trial can show the same thing. I'm with you. Yeah. Um, So on the other side, and maybe maybe you're in the same camp here, I've had a lot of people ask about some supplements and medications that are showing contraindications. And I, I don't, I have not found enough evidence on any of these NSAIDs, elderberry and NAD plus. So I think it's, we've, we've been hearing a lot about NSAIDs yeah. and NSAIDs are medicines that such as ibuprofen, such as uh, uh, Aleve, such as uh, naproxen. Um, and what we've been hearing about these medicines is that a, there's a controversy whether they actually make people worse or are helping them with regards to their temperature or how they're feeling. And, and so I don't know the right answer right now. I don't think anybody does. Um, however, the... Uh, uh, what is being advocated is to use acetaminophen, which is Tylenol. Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone has a fever or is not feeling well, uh, yeah. rather than take an NSAID such as uh, ibuprofen um, or naproxen, for example. Yeah, I think that that's a good alternative. And if we don't know, it's better just to avoid them just in case if we're able to. So I agree with you there. Uh, and thank you so much for this conversation. I know that you have to run, but I, I just really appreciate your time and for you sharing your knowledge with all of us. You're welcome, Kayla, and have a wonderful day too. Take you care. Too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the BioCurious podcast. I wanted to thank you for being part of this BioCurious podcast community and also for providing feedback to the podcast episodes. I read and really value every single one of the reviews that y'all leave for us and I take the feedback to heart. If you haven't left us a review, please do so as it really is the best way to support this work and keep it going. Please also share the podcast with anyone that you think would benefit from this information. 
I also wanted to take a moment to thank the podcast sponsors who also help to sustain this work and they offset the costs associated with podcast production. I only invite brands that I personally use and trust and also brands that I personally know the owners who take pride in the quality of their products. Formula is a personalized nootropic brand that I have really come to love because of a couple things. Number one is they only inc include a few high quality ingredients in each of their formulas, usually three to four, and there is just no filler crap and there's not just a ton of ingredients in each one of the pills. And number two is they offer four different nootropic stacks, each with a specific purpose that, can, that really does work amazingly well. Um, my all-time faves, which you may have heard me talk about previously, are the Clarity and Creativity Stacks, which are just awesome. Another big bonus for me is that they offer their nootropics without any caffeine, or you can get it with caffeine. And that's really important for me because I love to have my coffee in the morning and also take my nootropic, and I just don't need the extra caffeine in my nootropic. The other one is BioStrap, which as y'all know, is my all-time favorite wearable. I talk about them all the time because they're amazing. This device is my ride or die in terms of personal data collection. As a health scientist, I don't like to make any health decisions without data. So my BioStrap has really just been a godsend to help me make informed decisions about my sleep and recovery interventions. You can find the links to both of these amazing companies and their products in the show notes below. And you can also find a special discount code just for the BioCurious listeners. So until next time, be well, my friends.